Welcome to At Length with Steve Share. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to drop me a line, I'm at at length with Steve Share at gmail.com. All one word, Share is S-C-H-E-R. I recommend that you listen to this podcast with a big stein of beer. And when you raise it, raise that glass, not just to the amazing brewers across the centuries who have given us the beers we enjoy, not just to the brewers today who are transforming beer itself. Raise it also to the power of the beverage to shape societies. That's what Devin Brisky and her co-author, Johan Swinnen, have covered in Beeronomics, How Beer Explains the World. We talked by Skype. Hello? Hello, Devin. Hi. Nice to meet you. How did you get into the beer world anyways? What was interesting to you about it? Uh, so I grew up in an Irish family, so alcohol is always a big part of our culture. <laughs> and I just, uh, when I was in college, I started uh, on a path of food and drink journalism. I worked at Eater, which is a food blog, part of Vox Media, back in the day. And um, I basically was offered this opportunity as I graduated uh, because the professor I was working with uh, Professor Johan Swinnen was an economist, and he had collected a bunch of academic papers about um, the beer markets and economics of beer, and he wanted to turn it into a more popular read with stories. So my job was basically to interview brewers, dig up historical documents, try and find stories of people that exemplified these large-scale economic trends. I see. But was there anything unique about people who delve and dabble in beer production and beer drinking yeah i mean some of them were very interesting like there's i there's i was living in belgium at the time so i got to travel to the czech republic and germany and some really interesting characters like frank boone in belgium which is at the beginning of the 20th century had like 3,500 breweries in a tiny country and they all brewed very different very unique regional styles of beer and with the German occupation in World War One and World War Two, brought the introduction of lager, which is a very like a, a beer style that really lends itself to industrial beer production. And that's when you see the uh, beginning of Stella Artois, Artois Brewery, uh, which is a lager, and it really just took off because it was clear and it was consistent, and it could be brewed on a large scale. And so all these different um, little breweries started going out of business and they just couldn't compete because they were small. They couldn't compete on a cost basis because they were, um, they didn't have the capital investment and they also couldn't compete on a quality basis because they were basically just like brewing a new batch every time with what they had. And Frank Boone was one of a couple guys. Pierre Sellis was another, the kind of father of Hogarden beer, the white the white beer style from Hogarth in Belgium. They really wanted to preserve these local styles, which weren't considered high quality. They were the peasant beers, and they were just like these rural beer styles. So he did the crazy thing of buying this like tiny brewery from this guy named Rene Davids, who is like a very old man that ran it with his sister. And the only reason this was in the 70s, they were still in business is because they didn't have electricity, so they did everything. Like he said, they would elevate the um, the barrels of beer like by hand with a pulley, 
And like after, you know, in Belgium is very far north. So in the winter, it gets dark at like 4 p.m. And they had a cafe where all the locals would come and sit and they just wouldn't have lights. They, he would just pour the beer via gas lamp and they just sit in the dark. It was just like this super old school operation. So he brewed this beer, uh, this style of beer called Goose, which is um, spontaneously fermented. So the whole story with the Industrial Revolution of beer is like scientific uh, uh, developments allow brewers to isolate yeast and automate everything and make their beer very consistent. Spontaneous fermenting is like the opposite of that. It's like you just throw out all the the wort onto like this plane and then the bacteria and yeast in the air like spontaneously ferments and there's no controlling of the process. It's obviously very tied to place. He had this idea that he was going to charge very high prices for this beer and make it very high quality. And that's actually something we saw again and again as like the big innovation that the early craft brewers saw is that they could never compete on a cost basis with lager. So they had to charge a lot more money and say, this is worth it. This is like a high quality beer, which is not something people are used to. And in the beginning, people did think he was crazy. But now Boone Brewery is like exported around the world and costs, you know, a lot of money. Like one bottle is at least even in Belgium, one bottle is like four dollars, four euros, which is like probably four times the amount of similar beers. That sort of sounds like the the uh, same path that the craft brewers here in America have taken yeah. on. Yeah. The earliest craft brewer in America of the modern era is Fritz Maytag, who is um, actually the heir to the Maytag uh, washing machine fortune. He went to Stanford. He was German, but he went to Stanford University. And um, leading up to this, all of the American small, local and regional brewers had the same issue as the Belgian brewers, where they just couldn't compete with the large industrial brewers. And they were like, what are we going to do? We're losing money. We just can't compete with them. And so they kept making their beer lower quality because they didn't know how else to compete on a cost basis. And Fritz Maytag decided to revive this style of beer called steam beer that like was developed in San Francisco, like during the gold rush era, um, where they put the beer on rooftops and basically make it very high quality and charge a lot more money. And, market it as this kind of like elite California beer anchor steam and it grew in popularity first slowly and then basically inspired a wave of similar craft beers doing the same thing where they said we're gonna we're gonna use high quality ingredients and we're gonna charge more money. So that idea of beer being unique to the area, is that mm-hmm. the way it was from the very beginning when you looked back at the you know the initial beers what, Mesopotamian times? Is that right? The very earliest narrative work on tablets, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is from 2000 BC, uh, is a story of a beast man called Enkidu. And this is written ancient Mesopotamia. And there's this kind of story about how he is seduced by a priestess, Shamhat, 
and then he drinks seven jugs of beer. And the, the tablet goes, after he drank this beer, he became expansive and sang with joy. He was elated and his face glowed. He splashed his shaggy body with water, rubbed himself with oil, and turned into a human. And so I think it's it's very interesting that, like, this is a story of a beast who becomes a man. And it's kind of this allegory for how people saw um, the transition to civilization. Because Mesopotamia was one of the earliest societies we have on record uh, where people uh, left hunting gathering and started uh planned agrarian economy uh, based around harvesting grains. And it's also the earliest society we have of an example where they were brewing beer and planning it. And um, alcohol and planned alcohol production has always been tied to civilization. And it's also been a uh, something that has dictated our gender norms and our division of labor and our relationship with sex, which are always very things to human society. It's not an accident that Shamha is a priestess of sex and fertility, and she's the one to introduce Enkidu to beer because taverns frequently doubled as brothels, and there's actually very early art showing women drinking beer in seductive positions, which are not unlike today's beer advertisements. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> and yeah. So yeah, so it's it's you see it back, you know, the like the very earliest evidence we have of civilization shows that beer is a very crucial part of it and a crucial part in sort of dictating those norms. And actually in the ancient Sumerians, which came a little after the Mesopotamians, um, they are responsible for the earliest recorded law. There are a couple laws in it that address beer. And interestingly, they're all directed at a female pronoun. That's because women frequently ran the tavern slash brothels and brewed the beer because it was considered domestic labor. Oh, that's and so it was. So it was considered, were, it was domestic labor. That was part of the gender norming yeah, of it, it, huh? Yeah, it was brewed by women because it was food production, basically, and obviously on a very small scale. And so one said that, for example, a brew mistress needed to make sure that her tavern did not become a meeting place for thieves. Another said that if a priestess entered a tavern, she would be burned alive. So we see beer being brewed at a very kind of dictating our relationship with both sex and the law, like in the very, very earliest civilization. The subtitle of Beeronomics is How Beer Explains the World. Was there an aha moment for you where everything sort of fell together? Well, uh, one of the first chapters I wrote was the chapter on Britain and how beer funded Britain's imperialist conquest. And that I think was an aha moment because I had, I, the professor who did the research that is the basis of this chapter is this guy named John Nye, who wrote a magnum opus called War, Wine and Taxes. And it's a history of basically Anglo-French warring in from the 17th to 19th century, explained by how the two countries taxed alcohol. <laughs> And their trade war around beer and wine. And it, it was definitely an aha moment because when you really look at it, and this is also true of many other points of like all of European civilization and how, how powers were able to rise and fall is tied to how effectively they were able to collect taxes and therefore have resources to assert their power and dominance. 
And that frequently had to do with alcohol because alcohol is a great thing to tax because people will drink it no matter how much it costs. So um, what happened in, in Britain is that in 1689, there was the Glorious Revolution, which allied Britain with the Protestant Dutch Republic and basically made it the global rival of Catholic France. So from 1689 to 1815, Britain and France, Britain was at war for 91 years. So that's 80% of, of 125 years. And most of that was at war with France, be it the old absolutist or Napoleon. And they either won or were fighting on equal terms for all those years. And obviously by the 19th century, they were like the global world power, the um, empire where the sun never sets. And so during this time, the dominant economic ideology was mercantilism, not free trade. So they thought if our people drink French wine, then this will make us poor and then rich our rival. So we really need to encourage them to drink beer. So prior to 1689, they actually imported a lot of wine from France and not just like high end wine for aristocracy, but like barrels of very cheap wine um, for lower classes that were cheap. And in 1689, they launched a volume tariff on wine. So that meant that the aristocracy could still drink their high-end clarets, but the lower classes, they couldn't afford wine anymore. Um, and then they also launched basically like a massive propaganda effort to encourage the drinking of beer and cider as like a patriotic thing. So there are all these pub songs that, you know, people would sing that accused French wine of like boiling the products of our land and of her coin disrobe her. During this time, London sees a massive population explosion and also the Industrial Revolution, uh, which allowed brewers to brew beer more efficiently and cheaply as ever than ever. And they were able to do put in these massive capitalist investments. So prior to that, Britain basically had a situation where most pubs brewed their own beer. And this transitioned it to a consolidated industrial economy where a small number of brewers produced porter for all of the pubs in the city. To fund the war, the price of beer increases from, they called it two penny ale, from two pence to 3.5 pence and then four pence and eventually up to six pence. And so that's tripling the price of beer. And that really pissed people off, but they couldn't really do much about it. <laughs> there are 12 very powerful porter brewers that brewed most of the beer in the entire city of London. They were brewing beer per unit cheaper than ever, but beer was more expensive than ever. And there's also, some, they called it the beerage. And it was like a revolving door of large industrial brewers and politicians in parliament so they're always like a couple brewers in parliament they were like a political beer elite basically there's like a trade-off going on where there's this protectionist measure against cheap wine and so the brewers basically made a deal with parliament that's like you can make the price of beer high we'll make money no matter what um no one can lower their price 
below that so they weren't competing with each other and there's a consolidation so they're only dealing with like a few big players and they also the players were incentivized to pay their taxes because they knew parliament was protecting them against competition so it was like this situation that enables parliament to collect like a lot of tax revenue you see the tax revenue like rise a huge amount during this period and that's what they used to fund the war i can see why governments would like beer though because it's a very it seems like it's a much easier produced commodity to track and tax than you know but but just the hops or grains or even fruits and vegetables Mm -hmm. Did you do any studies that said, oh, look, as beer evolved, these other industries sort of took note and followed suit, might have seen how beer's own stratification of production may have influenced others? The 19th century was a very big century for um, scientific developments and the Industrial Revolution in the rest of the world. In the 19th century, we see a lot of stuff happening in Germany, and um, one of the big ones was the isolation of yeast and and understanding the science of yeast. So, um, and basically everything else that was really needed to enable like the large scale, fully industrialized beer production that we have today. It is true that beer incentivized a lot of those uh, developments. So a lot of the breweries in Germany, the big lager breweries like Spaten and Paulaner started funding scientists to figure out what yeast was, how do you isolate it, how do you develop strains that are best for taste, best for preservation, um, figuring out like how carbonation happens. Um, This is also uh, when pasteurization was developed so that it's most frequently associated with milk today, but it was actually developed by studying alcohol. And it led to the revelation that um bacteria is living and you know like living things are responsible for for this transformation that's happening as part of that uh, in the same era and related to the same incentives um you also see technological developments like bottling steam-powered machinery which reduced transportation costs and the most important of these technological developments which was refrigeration so what what these scientific developments did was they allowed beer to be produced more cheaply per unit um, after a high fixed cost investment. What did they taste like? Those beers before they had refrigeration and before they had the kind of uh, standardized products, have you tasted any of those really early beers? I have had... um, unpasteurized beer which you can get in the Czech Republic it's kind of a thing and it's really good the thing is though like we you know now we have this association of like craft beers are really high quality and but really like they were bad because they like the craft beers we have today is like are like craft beers informed by industrial techniques and knowledge (laughs) so so like we kind of look back we actually almost called the book which i don't think is a good title but we almost called the book from monasteries to multinationals and back because like beer started you know in this like kind of small scale um craft like every day we'll brew a beer based on what we have and you know you taste it and you figure out like you kind of learn over time 
like, what does this look like? We're trying to get back to that ethos now, but it's like informed by the idea that like we know what yeast is and we know how to isolate yeast and we know how to standardize production and like measure things like with standard, you know, recipes and stuff like those. Those were all things that happened in the 18th and 19th centuries. Part of what was going on is that they had they needed a way to have more safe drinking products. They weren't sure about their water, but when they brewed things, they would at least have something they could drink that they had a little more faith in? A lot of places would re-brew beer. And so the first batch would have a very high alcohol content and then later batches would have lower alcohol content and be very weak. And it was almost just like barley flavored water. And it was like a source of nutrition for them and a source of hydration. You know, we've seen the craft industry here rise and take more of the market share, if we want to talk about it that Mm -hmm. way. But, you know, it's still a very small part of what the industrialized multinationals sell. But are you? did you notice any trends that might be long-term trends in changes in how the multinationals are going to respond to the craft brewing industry? Well, we see a lot of craft consolidation. So we see a lot of multinationals buying craft breweries. Um, I think one of the high-profile ones was Heineken buying Lagunitas. Um, and and multinationals developing their own kind of craft-like beers. Like um, Coors has developed Blue Moon, uh, which is actually a very early example of, it, it was like kind of a side project that was not doing well for a long time and then took off and really rode the wave of, of craft, of the craft beer trend. Um, and uh, Anheuser-Busch, or AB InBev now has shock tops. So, so that's, that's one of the big ways they're competing. Um, and generally you just see a, a demand for a lot more variety than there used to be. Um, in America, for example, in 1990, like 94% of the market was run by four major breweries that all produced just straight up in like industrial lagers, Budweiser, Miller, Coors, and Pabst. So, but now there's a demand for a lot more variety. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that Shock Top was made by a multinational. Shock Top was actually developed as a competitor to craft beer. Since working on this book, like when I when I was writing it, I interviewed someone from Lagunitas, and they were, you know, saying they were there from the early days, and they were saying like Lagunitas is built on authenticity. We're just a couple guys brewing beers we like. Like this is our this is who we are. We're not faking anything. And since then they've been acquired by Heineken. Really, like I think America especially is very, is just as part of our culture and our taste, very focused on this idea of authenticity. And it makes sense for craft breweries to form partnerships and be acquired by larger breweries that have access to distribution networks and you can centralize things like marketing and advertising like that doesn't necessarily like the thing that's so good about craft beer is that they're brewing different styles and they're experimenting and that's something that breweries like Anheuser-Busch weren't doing if large breweries can get craft beer to more places like I don't see the problem with that I think it's kind of ironic because the the thing you see again and again with the economics of beer is brewers thinking of themselves as not economic actors. And when you look at the big picture, it's clear that 
they are. Why don't they see themselves as economic actors? Well, no, I mean, just just the way like most people don't see their jobs as like an economic activity. You know, they see it as like their life's calling, you know, something they care about. And it, it can be that, but it's also true that like you have to make the right decisions in order for that calling to work out. Do you have a, a beer, a favorite beer or a style of beer that you order when you do order a beer and you sit down at a bar? Well, from my time living in Belgium, um, I grew very fond of Belgian beers. So I really like Orval, um, all the Trappist beers, uh, Triple Carmelite, which is another example of a small brewer um, that was recently acquired. <laughs> by a large multinational and people are like, is it no longer authentic? So when you order that one, especially since it's been acquired by a multinational and you look at the glass, what goes through your head? Well, I I guess having written the book, I do just see beer more in terms of its qualities as a commodity. It actually has given me more appreciation for things like Budweiser, which are such an integral part of the story of post-war America in terms of like how it's tied to television advertising and sports and like all those industries kind of changing and growing together. And you see commodities as part of the fabric of a society they're in and like the choices the economic factors that lead to that like in america for example one thing that i think is interesting is that there's much more of an at-home drinking culture like in europe in belgium the cafes are these public places where everyone just goes and gets beer at the cafe and in america the bars are a much much lower share of beer sold is sold at bars hmm. much more in store for home consumption and how that that ties into what makes america different yeah that's a great answer that was a great answer all right good well i i appreciate you taking the time thank you so much bye-bye bye-bye time for a beer now right Devin Brisky is author along with johan swinen of beeronomics how beer explains the world She was a guest at Town Hall this January and also a guest on our other podcasts produced by Town Hall. It's called In the Moment. I co-host with Ginny Palmer. We take a look back at some of the great people that have talked to Town Hall the previous two weeks before the podcast drops and look ahead often to interesting guests who are coming up. I usually excerpt something for that podcast from this longer interview. So check out In the Moment. And thank you for listening to At Length. We'll talk again.